My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. And we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man with almost four decades of military service to this country. His dream started all the way back in the summer before his freshman year of high school when he finished reading a military-based book about every three days. By doing this, his mind was set on a life of service, which began in 1983 when he was assigned to 1st Battalion 75th Rangers as a brand new private. He made colossal strides in his career by not only becoming a ranger, but also a jump master by the rank of specialist. In 1987, and as a then staff sergeant, he transitioned to the Nebraska National Guard so that he could attend college. After receiving his bachelor's degree, he was back on active duty as a commissioned officer. Now this is where the career really takes off. He's held commands in the 101st, 75th Ranger Regiment, 508th Infantry, 173rd Airborne, where he was the commander of a battalion that was awarded a Presidential Unit Citation, Valorous Unit Award, over 400 individual Valor Awards that included three Living Medal of Honor recipients. He spent over six years of his life and career in combat and he ended his illustrious career as the Director of Military Instruction at the United States Military Academy at West Point, and he's here to tell how his warrior's life has affected him, his immediate family, and his much, much larger adopted family, the soldiers under his command, and what he's doing in that second chapter of his life. I'm honored to introduce you to William Bill Oslin, Colonel, U.S. Army, retired. How are you, sir? Hey, DJ. That, that was a heck of an intro, and really, thank you for having me on. And, you know, I appreciate what you do for the first responder community and the military community, military personnel, and just highlighting that bond uh, that that generally makes us mutually supporting members to each other is is pretty phenomenal. So well, thank you. So- yeah, I, I'm I'm absolutely like I said honored to meet you. There's so much that you've done. Um, you've you've had such a crazy career. Not only where you've touched a lot of different lives, but just things that how you went about things was so incredible to me and so interesting to me. But I want to go all the way back to your childhood. I talked in the opening about you reading books and stuff. But I've heard you in a lot of interviews. You talk about your dad and your granddad a lot and kind of that life that they gave you and how they instructed you and led you in your younger life and how it affected you later on in your command. So can we talk about that early life and and the family? Yeah, I I love talking about my family. And, um, you know, I I grew up with very modest in a very modest uh, family unit um, my mom had my, my older sister and I, when she was very young, um, got divorced when I was, was, I don't know, six months old or something. And really fortunately for all of us, she found an incredible man that I call my dad. 
Um, and again, just a blue collar worker, um, construction worker for the Minnesota Department of Transportation. But his father um, and mother were actually World War II veterans. And his father, my grandfather, Grandpa Osland, um, was a highway patrolman, Minnesota Highway Patrolman, badge number 187. And he was just a phenomenally gracious, kind, very, very handsome um, pillar in our community that had three sons. My father, the oldest, his brother, who actually owned a mobile gas station in a wrecker service. So he'd respond to accidents my grandfather was on. Um, my dad's younger brother was a deputy sheriff for 30 years in the county. And my dad was a constable as well. And people don't know what that means. That means he's got a badge and can kind of hang out with grandpa and, and an uncle um, and carry a gun and drive around and, uh, you know, confiscate beer and fireworks from people who are vacationing in that small town. Um, so uh, we put a premium on work ethic. Honor came from a hard work ethic being, you know, I didn't know the, t the word then, but being a great teammate, helping neighbors, helping people was, was kind of our, um, our credibility in the community, in the neighborhood. That was our currency. And um, my dad put a lot of emphasis on that. He was a bit of a disciplinarian, but I have a picture of him. He passed away in 2016, but I have a picture of him just belly laughing that, that I see when I walk into my office and when I walk out and several times through the day, because he was just a, a kind and gracious man as well. Well, it, when you talk about that being a blue collar, you started out your career very blue collar in the military and, and you rose to where you're, you're at a different level. You're, I guess you could say comparing it to a business world, white collar, with that blue collar uh, life that you had, and, and you worked at, at a very young age, you you had lemonade stand, you mowed grass, you did all kinds of things, and you started that work ethic very young. And it seems to tie over very quickly into your military career. Uh, do you think that that, if you would have had any other upbringing other than that blue collar, that it would have turned out so well for you? Well, DJ, really, I, I don't know what that would be. Um, I'd look at, and again, the small community I lived in was Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. And in Detroit Lakes, it's a real vacation area, um, not only from the for, for the people in Fargo-Moorhead, which was the metropolis to us, about 50 miles east, but really from all over the country. Um, all over Minnesota, the Midwest, but people would come from down south and in, in, in vacation in that area. 412 lakes um, within 25 miles of Detroit Lakes, and it was a real nice area. So I, I get to see people who I thought had, you know, incredible money and wealth compared to, to what we had. But I, I just observed that. I, I, that. That's not something that motivated me or uh, inspired me in any way, shape, or form. I like to work so I could put gas in a boat and go fishing and skiing and, and do what I wanted to do. Um, but money has never been a motivator um, for me. It was just different currency. Again, credibility, work ethic, honor, reputation. 
Um, so I, I don't know what it would have been like. Um, I, I'd say I think about my childhood all the time and I wouldn't change a single thing. I mean, I had everything we needed, um, a lot of what we wanted. Um, and, you know, the other thing, I ate breakfast with my mom and dad every morning before we went to school. They both went off to work when we got on the bus and we ate dinner every day plus or minus two minutes of six o'clock of 1800, we would sit down at the table and, and have dinner. Um, that, that's priceless. That's priceless. Well, that brings up a couple questions to me because of your career and you were gone so much, you had a wife, you had children. And I wanted to get into this a little later on, but I think it's a good time to bring it up right now. When you say that you would never trade that, you had breakfast with your parents every morning, you spent the days with them, you had dinner with them every night. That's a very different world from being in the military. So do you ever look at that and I don't want to use the word regret it, but do you ever th wish that it could have been a little different? You know, I have never, ever thought of that. Um, and, and I could, I could feel that question coming out of you. And, um, you know, maybe I should have thought of that over the years. Um, what a great childhood I had. Um, I Fortunately, I still have a wife and I have three kids who like coming home to two adult um, sons and, and a 15-year-old son. And as I say in many forms, I have a lot to atone for. Um, and it's largely tied to work ethic, if you will. Um, I don't think I ever lost my pride in being blue collar. And I'd make that comment. And, and I say blue collar is a badge of honor and, and really mean that. I have so much respect for our soldiers and non-commissioned officers and our first responders. It's just, it, it's really in my heart that these people work hard and are grossly underpaid in dollars and cents. But I think most um, are over, I, it's bad to say overcompensated, but feel overcompensated for the pride that they have in, in that work. Um, so, you know, to the point, hey, maybe I should have thought about <laughs> missing breakfast and, uh, and, and dinner and, and, and many, many events with the family over years, but it just became kind of my connection to my country, my service. And, and became our family lifestyle from the time we were a family unit. When, when you talk about that blue collar, I want to go back to that again because it's so important to me throughout your entire service, throughout the entire thing that you've done because you've always based everything you've done, everything that I've read about you, everywhere you've been, it's always been based in work and hard work not calling people out. And, and I had heard some stories about when you went over to the 101st in the beginning and there was a lot of stuff, but you didn't really call anyone out. You just got it in order. So going back to that, you know, being raised like that, that blue collar, you said that um, you, you never based it on money. When you look back on that, and you, you see how you were raised, because I've, I've heard you tell stories of even when you move from the first location that we're talking about over by the lakes and everything, and you moved to the suburbs, you thought that you had, you know, moved up in the world and, and it was a crazy place. Which one of those though, um, felt more 
to you like you? Well, I, I think um, most of us stay connected to our foundations. Um, I really liked the foundation that I grew up with. I had so much independence. And as you said, you know, as, as a five-year-old, my parents let me walk three miles around the golf course and pick up golf balls and sell them back to golfers. And, you know, by the time I was eight, um, I had a little lawn service. And by the time I was 10, I was CEO of Billy and Danny's Lawn Service, and we were making significant money. Um, you know, people don't want to come to the lakes and mow their yard. Um, and we figured that out. We figured out we could charge more if we mowed on, on Thursday and Friday than if we mowed on Monday. And we charge, charge more. You know, it was, it was a great place to live. But we also, you know, long winters and dangerous times. And, and, and that was phenomenal. But I, I now consider Omaha my home because I went there as a freshman in high school and as I've talked about before, people that have moved between their freshman and, and, and are before their freshman year, before their high school years, know that's, that's hard to make friends at that time until, until school starts. So I basically sat in, in red, in red, in red. Um, when I hit school, I, I loved high school. I didn't have bad drama in high school. I, I liked it. I liked my friends. I liked my girlfriends. Um, it was it was a great high school that we were in. I was uh, above average student, not brilliant, but you know, in the top twenty percent, I did okay. Didn't do any homework, and uh, I was an average athlete, or I'd say actually a below average athlete. Um, <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I got a mercy. I, um, letter my senior year as a football player because I'd never played this sport. I played hockey, um, but I had a great coach and I learned an incredible amount um, about resilience and toughness in three-a-day football practices in Nebraska with kids that have been playing <laughs> football since they were five. Um, so it, it, it was a good learning experience. And and, and I, lo I love the suburban Omaha. I love going back there. My family's there, um, but it was it was definitely dichotomy of <laughs> of places to live for sure. Do you think that a lot of that is gone today in society? That that hard work, that drive to be something bigger or better than you are, always striving to do something different. Do you think a lot of that's gone now? Yeah, I would say. Most of the kids that I grew up with in Minnesota, um, there were three of us. Again, it was a vacation community. So from Memorial Day to Labor Day, there were people around us. After Labor Day, after that weekend, there were three of us my age within a mile. It was Danny, Denise, and I would go everywhere and do everything. But Denise's parents owned uh, a, res a resort with cabins and boats and everything. In, she and her, her siblings worked very hard on that resort. So time was, we, we enjoyed our time off. Um, we invested it and, and had a lot of fun. Um, Danny and I did everything together, um, all of our odd jobs together. So when I was growing up, I thought that was the norm. That's what people did. And I, and I had friends in town that, that worked as well and um, would, would really partake in that vacation community to earn some money in the summer. So most of the people I was associated with worked. Um, in Omaha, it was the same thing. Most kids had jobs and part-time jobs. And I'll tell you, you know, right or wrong, 
I had an agreement with my kids. I didn't want them to work. Although it was great for me, I told them your job is academics and athletics. And, you know, my, my, both my oldest sons had more, more high school letters than me their freshman year. You know, I mean, they, they did well. Um, so that was their work ethic. School studied a heck of a lot more than I ever did in school. Um, and it paid off for them. So, um, I just had two young boys over here mowing my yard because my mower hasn't come in. I've moved into a new house and, uh, the, these two boys worked their tail off and I was, just, I just enjoyed, they had to hear about Billy and Danny's lawn service. And, uh, I just really enjoyed <laughs> seeing a, a 14 and about a 10 year old out there mowing the yard. Mom was there supervising them and it was, it was enjoyable, but I, I don't see that, that that much anymore. So, you know, I, and, and I think it's a problem now. See, I have the exact opposite of you. I, I am raising three girls. I have two teenagers and one that's a nine-year-old now. What I see uh, with my kids is they strive for school, just like, you know, you said. But I look around at a lot of the kids they go to school with, and you ask them what they want to do or what they want to be. If they even, I'll break it down to even if they want to drive and they're like, man, I don't want to get my driver's license. I don't know if I really want to go to school. I, I don't know. I, I just want to, you know, right now I just want to graduate from high school and, and I'll see how it goes from there. And I think maybe I thought that way. I don't know. Maybe I'm giving myself more credit than I'm due, but it just seems like we're almost like a rudderless, uh, in a rudderless situation right now. Yeah. You know, that, that is amazing to me too. Um, Again, where, where, where did the, the desire for our independence come from? Maybe it was more oppressive parents that, that drove us to want that independence. Um, I, I enjoyed independence. Um, my dad knew the hardest thing in the world on me was to ground me. I don't know many kids even know what grounded is anymore. Um, you mine know, do. Yeah, <laughs> my, mine don't. <laughs> They've heard about it conceptually, um, but uh, try to avoid it. Um, but, you know, I got my, I drove myself to the DMV in Omaha. I bought my car when I was 14 and a half, paid cash for uh, a four-year-old Firebird, again, work ethic. And all I could do is back it out of the driveway, wash it and wax it for a year and a half. Um, the day I turned 16, I drove to the DMV, took the test, passed. The man said, well, where, where's your parents at? You know, and I bold face lied to him and said they, they dropped me off and left. And I got in my car and two days later, my parents let me drive with my um, sister who was four years younger than me, 600 miles to Minnesota for two weeks. Wow. And, and you know, my mom says, we didn't let you do that. And we're like, yes, two days after he turned. Because um, I was up there for Danny and Denise's birthday, which was the 12th of July, three days after mine. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it was just a level of independence. I wouldn't let give my children right now, but I haven't been as, uh, I'll say, oppressive on them as mine were. And I, I use oppressive in a good sense. Like my parents Absolutely. knew where I was at. And, and how did they know? You know, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, you know, the tracker apps. We didn't have anything. We, we had party line telephones and 
um, some way, shape, or form, it took a village, and the village would report on what we were doing, <laughs> for good or ill. <laughs> I remember growing up that, like, my neighbors, you could get in trouble from them. Like, yeah. if you were hanging out with their kid, you could get in trouble by their parents. Yeah. Well, and there's some goodness in that, right? <laughs> Having a whole bunch of parents, uh, and it, it, it was good. It was good. I, I think we just kind of evolve as a society. Maybe sometimes we can look back and say we devolve as a society. But, um, you know, I think it's up to all of us, right, to instill, whether it's work ethic, academics, um, uh, a part-time job, or, or athletics, whatever our skill sets are, um, whatever our kids' skill sets are, to impart that and try to maximize it. And, you know, I, I say both in the Army and with my kids, and I felt like I did it better in the Army than with my kids sometimes, is, you know, I go to work and, uh, and try to live life trying to inspire all to aspire to their full potential. And it took me a while to get that, but that brings me a lot of joy. And, and we know that if you got an average police officer or an average soldier that you can move to be much better than average, that, that's as rewarding or sometimes more rewarding than finding that one superstar that is, is totally gifted. But you get those young soldiers that, that uh, are really struggling. And when you can develop them, and they come in all ranks. And heck, as I went up <laughs> in rank to, to colonel, you know, sometimes there are majors and lieutenant colonels that are struggling. But you get them to, to really maximize their personal potential. Um, that, 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 that's pretty doggone rewarding. And it's, you know, I've got very, very successful sons, my two oldest ones, um, in my mind, they're very successful em empirically. I think others would say the same, but, uh, the, the soldiers that I've had are, are equally as rewarding to see their successes. Well, I want to talk about that as we get closer to West Point in your career and stuff, because there's some things that really stand out in your career there that I'd like to focus in on. And it kind of will go back to that question where I ask you about your youth compared to your kids' youth and things like that. But I want to hear, because I've heard a little bit of it, but I want to hear the story of how you got in. You weren't necessarily an Army guy right off the bat, nor did you really want to be an Army guy right off the bat. And you had a little trouble. But if you can tell that story, because I... One, I think it's pretty funny. And then I look at, once again, the ingenuity of the Army that we'll figure out how to get the job done and get it done however we need to. So if you will, can we just go over you joining up? Yeah. So I moved to Omaha. Um, didn't really know anybody. I was a pretty voracious reader at that time. And, you know, it was 1979, I guess, 1979. So we we're, you know, five years out of Vietnam. A lot of books were coming out. And there was a little bookstore a um, mile from my house that had a good sock of, of these books. So I, I'd pick up and I'd order or talk to the lady there about getting all these books about infantrymen. I was really focused on, on tactical infantry stuff, really squad platoon, long range surveillance, ranger teams, SF guys. Um, and, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of books about Marines, but the few that I read, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And I'm not exactly sure how my mind gravitated from all these army books to wanting to grow up to be a Marine. And I'm sure it had to do with their advertisement campaign, but I knew I was going to be a Marine infantryman. 
So as happens, and I understand it still happens because I was just talking to some kids, is when school let out after my junior year, the recruiter started calling. And the Marine recruiter called and I said, hey, I'm going to be your easiest recruit ever. I said, I'm above average intelligence, not brilliant, but I'm pretty fit. Um, and, uh, and I want to be a Marine. Wanted to do this since I was a freshman in high school. And my parents will sign me away, no problem. Um, so I drove down there and uh, talked to this gentleman. And, and he, I remember he, he was kind of a taller, red-haired Marine sergeant. And I knew enough about the services that, you know, I was very comfortable. He was a Sergeant E5. I understood that. Um, so we started talking and he was giving me the whole Marine Corps spiel. And, and I was like, I'm all in. You don't have to sell me on anything. Ready to go. Sign in as an infantryman. And he was like, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Not everybody. Not everybody can be a Marine infantryman. And I was kind of taken aback. I thought that's what the Marines were. We're infantrymen. And, um, and he goes, no, no, no. What you do is you go take a test and then we send you to boot camp and then we give you another test or another assessment. And then we'll tell you how you can best serve the Marines. And I was like, oh, wow. Sergeant, what, what are you? What are you? And um, he goes, well, me, I'm an infantryman and I'm articulating this a little bit, probably better than, than the conversation went, um, but without any revision in it. That was largely the conversation. And I remember as I don't even think I, I was 17 yet or maybe I just turned 17 is I thought, dang, if this guy's an infantryman, Marines are going to make me a brain surgeon. I don't want to be a brain surgeon. I want to be an infantryman. And, um, you know, it's a little bit humorous, but I, I was really kind of distraught because that was as far as my plan went is being a Marine infantryman. So as is the case in many recruiting areas, um, the Marines shared a vestibule with, with a Army recruiter. And this guy, um, recruiter, mustache, smoking a cigarette, um, not the fittest um, human being that I'd ever run across at that time, um, but he called me a Marine. He's, and he had to love having this red-haired Marine across from him. He said, hey, Marine, how are you doing? And I'm like, oh, Sergeant. You know, and he was a Sergeant First Class. I'm like, oh, Sergeant. I said, uh, yeah, I'm not a Marine. I said, uh, you know, he couldn't guarantee me I'd be an infantryman. And, and you know, this, this Sergeant First Class station chief or whatever he was called, drug me in there. He's well, come on in. And they had these old things called tech tapes that would just like go kind of like an eight track tape. They go forever. And uh, he plugs in um, this uh, infantry tape from the army. And back in that day, that was pretty high tech, this little machine. And uh, in, you know, the Reagan era he had already started. So we had Bradley's jumping over berms and M1 tanks shooting and Apache helicopters, all this business. I was like, holy smokes. But he, he knew he was just, just he hadn't even set the hook. Then he puts in the airborne tape with this music and dropping on Friar Drop Zone. And, and, oh, God, that was cool. But then the hook came. Then he put in the Ranger tape. Guys in Zodiacs, camouflage, going down a little river, M16 slung on them and coming out of the water and rappelling. And I was like, holy smokes. But, you know, what I took away from that, is that gentleman told me, he said, this is all on you. 
well, he was he he was reading my mind. That's how my parents had raised me. That's how my grandparents had raised me. Is hey, it's all on you. It's up to you. You deliver. You be effects based. You deliver those effects, and good things will happen. And he said, you know, I can get you the contract, but but you got to deliver. And that's all I needed. I spent 11 months, um, you know, working out, reading everything I could. And hell, I got five people to sign up for that recruiting station, including my sister, the only person I ever talked into joining the Army. Um, so they, they thought that was a pretty good find from that uh, Marine Corps. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure that Marine was pretty upset when he saw everyone going next door. They should have given you like a punch card or something by bringing that many people over to them. Heck, I, it was better than that. I remember, heck, and I had it for 20 years. I had a green Army T-shirt that they gave me that said Army on it, and I was so proud of that. But then number five got me a windbreaker. It was probably about a $4 windbreaker that said Army on it, and I was I was in high cotton then. It, it was good stuff. It was good. <laughs> so going into your career, you, you get what you want. You, you start to go where you're going. Something interesting right off the bat about your career, though, is two different duty assignments that you went to went to war like the next day. There was battle the next day as you arrived at those. You're kind of a good luck Chuck for that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm I'm trying to understand. You go there. This is what you've wanted to do your whole life. You get there and you start uh, in processing and everything and your unit's gone. It's yeah. got to be a, a blow to the sales uh, that, that they're gone, or, or does that just drive you even more because you think, man, I did make the right decision? Yeah, so in the 1st Ranger Battalion, in, in, I, I've got one really close friend um, that, that I just happened. I met my very first day in the Army, um, and uh, Lance Mansky was a, a phenomenal, is a phenomenal human being and um, all-state athlete from Oregon and, and wrestler and football player and, and uh, you know, a wife that he's had since he was 17 years old and three sons as well. But uh, Lance and I went through our training together and we met there again. And, and then we went to airborne school with a couple other guys that were going to uh, the Rangers. On my very first jump, I sprained my ankle. Sprained it bad, but it happened to be the week of Columbus Day, so it was kind of compressed, and and by get, getting some some tape, um, and one partner pulling down on my or one teammate pulling down on my foot, and another ta Lance taping it up, putting my boot on, I was able to get through the five jumps. But I knew I wouldn't make it through Ranger training or the Ranger indoctrination program on that ankle that I needed a week or 10 days. And they gave us that opportunity. So all three of us, and we were 11 Charlie Mortarman, all three of us went on leave to our respective areas, came back and we arrived back um, for, for the Ranger indoctrination program on 25 October, 1983. We didn't know as we were pulling into that little compound getting dropped off that the Ranger Battalion, 1st and 2nd Ranger Battalion, had just jumped into Grenada like hours earlier. It was daylight in the morning of 20, 25 October. So right as we were reporting, um, the rest of the battalion was jumping into Grenada. 
Um, the Ranger Indoctrination Program NCOs, the sergeants, were uh, obviously a little bit teed off that they did not get to deploy into harm's way. Um, but they had a job to do, and that was to train us in case we had to go forward. Nobody knew what the casualty levels were going to be. So we had some pretty intense training um, and, uh, and stayed there. It was a three-week course, but we really stayed there for six weeks waiting for the battalion to get back. But what I really took away from that is when I got into my section, I was a 90-gunner. or I went to a mortar section, and within a couple of weeks, I got moved over to the um, 90 section, which is a recoilless rifle. And my section leader, father, had been in five, five uh, combat tours, one in Korea, four in Vietnam. So in his in-processing counseling, and by the way, Mike Matt, he's still a really dear friend, um, it, he said, hey, check this out, man. He said, my dad was in five combat tours, and he told me, um, you know, the opportunity to go to combat doesn't come around very often. So when you get that opportunity, you want to have fun. And it's easier to have fun if you're ready or best prepared. Um, and my section leader also was one of the few enlisted guys that got a Bronze Star for Valor in Grenada. Um, so he was kind of a big deal. And, you know, all these guys were heroes to me. They're Ranger qualified, you know, a lot of master jumpers, combat jump stars. And that really resonated. But then he, he walked the walk. They didn't have a big, you know, take 30 days off. They just got back to work. And, and really, Grenada validated they had been doing the right things. So we just did the right things more. And again, you know, like my grandparents, my grandfather and my uncles and my dad laid this incredible foundation as a young man. The Ranger Battalion you know, amplified or, or laid a, a, a thicker foundation for my service in, in the Army. So if grandparents and dad were foundations for life, um, the Rangers were certainly the foundation for for my military career. And uh, and I so enjoyed, enjoyed that tour. And, you know, I've always been proud and I will be for the rest of my life to say, hey, you know, what'd you do? I was an Airborne Ranger infantryman. And I love saying I was a sergeant in the airborne, you know, in, in the Ranger Battalion. And as I went through, it didn't matter whatever rank I was. My NCOs knew that, you know, they knew I was I was a Ranger NCO. Um, and, and that had an element of credibility with them, but it also allowed me to hold them to a pretty high standard. Um, and, and they knew that and, and they never disappointed um, as we worked together. At that time, we're, we're talking now we're eight, nine years away from Vietnam and things like that. Um, you're going into the Cold War. Uh, there's a lot of different stuff. It's more spy craft. It's more not. I mean, we're, we're, of course, fronting Russia, the United States. But I think a lot of guys in the military then, just as through the 90s, didn't really think about war and going to war do you think as as a big army they didn't really think about that of course reagan was like you said he was bolstering up the forces and stuff but i don't think that that was at the forefront of a lot of people's mind 
yeah, it was at the forefront of ours literally every day. I mean, I thought about it, um, maybe dreamed about it, thought about it um, to the point I honestly never, ever, ever thought I would live to be 20 years old. I didn't have a vision past that. As you mentioned earlier, um, I was the the only um, 19 year old Ranger Jumpmaster qualified person in the Ranger Regiment, and the only one that I ever met. You know, it was just happenstance, a bunch of luck, and things came together. But at very young age, you know, I was putting people twice my age out of aircraft at night as a Jumpmaster. Um, I, 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 I don't. I just want to interrupt you for a second. I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit there. That was very much a plan of ingenuity on your part uh, of going to Jumpmaster. That that was very well uh, coordinated in your mind, and you did that on purpose. And I don't think a lot of people know that about you that you did that on purpose. There was a lot of other schools that you could have gone to, and you decided break off from the norm and take care of this while you could. Yeah, the couple couple of things, um, and, and I, I I do laugh about that story. Is you know, again, I'm not the smartest guy that I that I've ever met, but I but I am a learning individual. I, I watch things and see patterns, and um, at that time in the Rangers, and I'm sure it's it's largely the same. Is when you came back from Ranger school, you got to put in for a school, you put in a, a school packet. And for all the right reasons, everybody wants to go to scuba school or halo school, um, high altitude, low opening. Um, they're, they're both really, really cool schools. Um, I really did enjoy, I was one of the few people that did enjoy jumping out of airplanes with all of our gear and at night. And, and you know, I, I just liked it. Um, to that end, I also saw my peers that put in for these schools would get real close. They'd get a slot, they'd get real close to going out the door to their school and a staff sergeant would re-enlist or a sergeant would re-enlist and the company would reallocate that slot to the re-enlisting sergeant or staff sergeant. And I was like, nah, man, I'm not doing that. Um, so I did put in for path or uh, jump master school. And, uh, and just again, by chance, it came through and somebody missed that I was only an E4 and a specialist and, and, uh, and, and it worked out. And I went to Fort Benning, it was a tough school, um, with my section leader and my uh, platoon leader. And uh, <laughs> after, after some trials and tribulations, graduated a couple of weeks later, three weeks later, I think. And, um, and, uh, and then I got the duties because Jumpmaster duties pull you out of the unit on the day of a jump. There's a, there's a lot to getting people onto and out of an aircraft. Um, and as a very junior person, I was quite, you know, expendable. I could go hang out at the airfield all day long. So I got to do a lot of duties as a very young person. Um, and I loved it. And I said for years, I wouldn't say it now, but I said for decades that if the army said, Hey, you got to give one of your badges back and get in and re-earn it. Would you give back your Ranger tab or your master wings? And without a, without a moment's hesitation, I'd give back my tab because that only took 58 days to earn the first time. Um, and it wasn't, <laughs> I didn't think, um, but uh, being a jump master, that's 65 jumps and there's select jumps and duties you got to do. That takes a long time. It took three years to earn that. So. 
So you decide as a staff sergeant, as you move through your career, that you're going to go back to school. Now, this was where it got a little off for me. Was there a reason that you decided to, to step away, go to school? Uh, did you have other plans in, in the future? Or what was it about it that made you step away? As Because as a staff sergeant, you're doing pretty well. I mean, you've got four years in, in the regiment. Uh, and by all accounts, you've, you've done a great job. You have no problems. Why are you stepping away to go ROTC and then possibly come back as enlist, uh, as an officer? Yeah. In, in, in that, in the regiment, um, in first battalion, I, I had incredible mentors. Um, in fact, I've run across a number of them, um, that were lieutenants and I, I had a lot of respect for the lieutenants and, you know, people want to make jokes about lieutenants. I, I, had good lieutenants when I was a young ranger and I had good lieutenants when I was a colonel. Um, and, uh, but their job as, as lieutenants and in the senior, more senior NCOs is really to, I think, motivate you and inspire you to be the best version of yourselves. And by and large, in that first assignment that happened, um, Again, I had opportunities when I was really young um, and I needed challenges. And just by chance, I had an opportunity to plan some training that went pretty well. And the lieutenants took note and said, hey, if you enjoy doing this, then, then you might want to consider getting commissioned. I mean, that's what lieutenants do is plan training, resource it, um, lead the execution of it. And, and, and I like that. And I thought I was a pretty good NCO, but I knew the passion wasn't there for the technical tasks that are required. Um, I enjoyed technical tasks for some things. I mean, I was a very good 90 gunner, good 90 team leader. I had the knowledge, but it didn't, you know, it just wasn't in my soul. Like, like at least I thought it must be in, in the best NCOs that I, that I saw. They were both good at the technical and the tactical. Um, so, you know, just, I, I got mentored to maybe look at this path. So I looked at all the different programs and I always wanted to be a drill sergeant. So I was really struggling. Um, if I could step back, you know, th this was all kind of an avalanche of ideas because again, I, I remember sitting in my barracks room the day I turned 20 thinking, damn, I got to figure this out. I, I don't have a plan. My plan was, you know, to come in the Rangers and, and get out, go to college, go to business school. But after I got in the Rangers, I didn't think I was ever going to kind of, I don't know, leave or survive. And I wasn't wasn't fatalistic at all. I just I just didn't think that way. Um, so after I turned 20, then I started like, hey, man, I got to come up with a plan. And, and all these things kind of came together. So um, I went up to uh, support brigades uh, headquarters where I could do some college and the you know, I was tasking NCO. So I was putting all the supply requests or the truck and helicopter requests in for the Rangers and doing that, but going to school and figuring it out. Well, I, I went, I actually was able to extend three months. So, you know, serving as a staff sergeant, I, I, I was, got promoted the day I left the service and transitioned into the guard. I purposefully extended for three months. So I'd make staff sergeant. I thought I'd make it then um, because of the points and all this stuff. So I transitioned into the guard as a staff sergeant. Um, and that was fantastic. 
Um, wasn't initially transitioning out and convinced I'd go to ROTC, but within days of getting off active duty, getting back to Omaha, talking to the guard unit, talking to ROTC, I'm like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Um, and, uh, you know, was went to four semesters of college and brought everything together, CLEP tests and, and um, you know, testing out of, of uh, different classes and was able to graduate in four semesters. And um, purposefully with a high enough GPA that I was convinced the Army would actually send me back to school for an education. Um, and, and that actually worked out. Um, so just a couple weeks after graduating, I was back on active duty in at Fort Benning, Georgia as an infantry officer. Comparing the two, enlisted life, officer life, and we'll get into your officer life because there was a lot more of your career in that. Which did you think you learned more from? Now, one was longer, like we just said, but everything that you're kind of based in in the military is that enlisted life. Yeah, yeah that 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 was a foundation. That that was absolute foundation, and it, it was a foundation like a Roman road, you know, that's like a 13 layer road that lasts for thousands of years. That was, that was the foundation. Um, and, uh, I say Rangers aren't perfect, but they are resilient and they are smart in learning organization, um, and figure out how to get the best version of people out of themselves. And, you know, the young men that leave the Rangers come into and then leave, um, are generally pretty successful. And I know we might talk about West Point later. It, there, there's a lot of similarities between showing up at West Point as a plebe and showing up in the Rangers as a new Ranger. Um, if you look for the similarities, they're there. And if you maximize the opportunities, both pathways are pretty doggone similar. Because I've heard you talk a lot about West Point and how much you liked being there. Do you think it's because there's so many similarities between that and the Rangers is why you love that assignment so much? I, I think by the time I got to go there as, as a post company command captain, um, I think I was able to see the similarities. Um, but I also both tours as a captain and my final tour in the army as a colonel, I also saw incredible missed opportunities in the ring, or in, in at West Point. I thought the Rangers were exponentially better at getting the most out of people. Um, I think there's a lot of latent potential at West Point for a lot of reasons that I can go into later. But um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed being the director of military instruction and and being able to get the most out of many um not at all but the most out of many um when i was there yeah. so coming back your big army as you come back in you're you're not with the rangers anymore uh and you're gone to the 101st correct as you come back your commission you come back the 101st uh and this was the tour that included desert shield desert storm but as you come back there, it's a completely different world for two different reasons. One, you're coming back as an officer, which is a way different life than an enlisted guy or an NCO, which you were. And number two, your big army and the way they approach things is like we talked about before. I don't think war was on their mind. I don't think that a lot of things that you had trained and put into your 
mindset transferred over to that. Would you agree? So you're you're way behind the power curve on a lot of things getting there. Yeah, no, I think you characterized it well. And um, the only time I really served in a true division was as a second lieutenant in uh, in the army in our second a few months as a first lieutenant. Um, and I'll explain that. I mean, that was 101st Airborne Division. The entire division was there. After I left that assignment, um, I was in either separate brigades, the 173rd Airborne Brigade, the 75th Ranger Regiment. My brigade command was 968 miles from the division headquarters in, in first ID. Certainly a division, but I was kind of off by myself. When I was a company commander in Korea, I was in the second infantry division, but those brigades are very dispersed and very separate. Um, so. I enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed kind of avoiding the big army. There's pros and cons to that. But as you said, 101st, and, and you know, I'm pretty adamant about this, had taken their eye off the ball a bit on, on the whole combat thing. Um, they'd been, um, hadn't been in combat since Vietnam. I think they felt a little bit left out on some of the things that, you know, some of the contingency operations and combat operations that had occurred in the 80s. Um, and, you know, my, my story is I showed up there one August 1990. And um, by that time, I had seven years in an infantry company. Um, I was adamant about not being the best NCO in the company, but trying to learn how to be an officer from the, from the lieutenants. And um, day one, I was told, hey, you're the arms room officer. Okay, that's additional duty. Go check it out. Um, whether you're a police officer or for, you know, first responder military person, I hope you can appreciate this is when I opened the arms room door, um, every weapon was visibly dirty. Every piece of equipment. I saw. Wait a minute. From the door, you could see that every weapon was visibly dirty. Every weapon that I saw, I could okay. tell it was visibly dirty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it was just that in, in the reason was, and, and this isn't, bashing on this unit in particular, um, but it was an experience that really set set in my mind, juxtaposed between the Rangers and regular Army. And um, the reason they had come in on a, on a Thursday and put the weapons in a room, it's now, uh, and took a four-day weekend, and, and now it's Monday, and, and they had a plan to take the weapons out and clean them. Um, but I just walked down and talked to the current arms room officer and uh, talked to a first sergeant and just said, hey, you know, um, I'm kind of used to rifle companies rotating around rifles. I know I'm the new guy, but, you know, he's pretty dirty um, and I think we ought to take them out. And they, they were a little embarrassed, but, you know, we, we got a plan. Everybody took the weapons out and started cleaning them and, and all the equipment. And we did that. And, um, you know, there just wasn't that urgency innately in the company. Um, and then to August 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And we're all watching the news. And 7 August, um, 101st gets alerted to deploy to Desert Shield. Um, I mean, so that was pretty quick turn. And then 11 September, we deployed. But between 7 August and 11 September, I mean, we were loading weapons and ammunition in my Ford Ranger pickup truck, um, driving to the ranges, stuff I've never done the rest of my career, but everything was waived um, there. 
for good reason. And we learned an incredible amount, but fortunately we had Desert Shield to really, really hone our individual and collective task training that we needed to do. Um, and I, I felt pretty confident when, when our, we were called to do uh, the largest air assault in history um, in, in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, um, that, that we, we were as prepared as we could be. Um, and, you know, it was over pretty quickly, but uh, it, it seeded a lot of things in my mind. Um, what did seed in? In the Rangers, I always felt prepared. In 101st, for a brief period of time, I didn't feel prepared, and but I felt uber responsible for the people that I was in charge of. And I vowed I would never, ever, ever be unprepared again. And, and to that end, that drove a lot of things you talked about up front, DJ, is, you know, hey, did you miss breakfast? Did you miss dinner? Did you ever think? Um, you know, in retrospect, I probably pushed units too hard. Um, and I probably took time away from my family that I should have been able to calibrate better on. But I also had no regrets when, when we went into combat. And I mean, I had regrets. We lost people. But I think if we wouldn't have prepared as hard as we did, we would have lost more. Um, so that, that was a trade-off I was willing to make um, throughout my career. Well, a couple questions come up from that. The first one that comes up from that is that when you say that you weren't prepared at the 101st, are you worried? Because even though you haven't been in combat yet, you've been in units that have deployed, you've been around these guys that have deployed, recently deployed, and uh, you go here, they're not quite ready, you see the weapons. I'm sure that with the weapons being that way, it's kind of a windfall to the rest of everything that's going on, whether that be operations, uniforms, morale, all that kind of stuff going over. Now you see, we're going to war. Are you nervous that we're going? I, I, I wasn't nervous um, at, at all, really. I mean, again, everybody says this, but I mean, it's true is after you've trained in the army for whether it's, you know, your basic and your infantry training or whatever skill you have, and, and if you like what you're doing in your training and training and training, you, you want to go to the game because you're ignorant. You don't know what you don't know. And, um, you know, like I tell my son who just got back from Iraq um, is, hey, be careful what you wish for. You know, there's a lot of people that have the combat accolades that died getting them. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'll be adamant about for a period uh, early period of my career, I couldn't wait to get in combat. But shortly after being in combat and losing people in combat, you realize, hey, I'd, I'd be just as happy training for the rest of my life and, and preparing. Um, but there, there's some balance in there. Um, with with 101st, I, I wasn't nervous. I, I just felt I, I had a lot of work to do. And we were going to figure it out. And I had, you know, NCOs that heck one of them was had literally my weapon squad leader had literally landed on the beaches of Vietnam in June of 1965 a month before I was wow. born I mean he was just like an icon right um, and, and he, he he wasn't the fastest runner in a platoon and he was, couldn't carry the heaviest load but <laughs> God, God, did, did I maximize that guy and um, and you know he was kind of like 
you know, pops right there. And hell, he was older than my dad. And, um, you know, he, he was an icon. But how do you maximize those people so we can move from where we are right now to something much, much better and much more prepared? And that's what we worked on. And, you know, it's pretty rewarding. Some of those cats still reach out occasionally. And one, one lives, you know, 70 miles from me. So it's pretty, pretty rewarding to have those relationships. And so after you go there and, and you see what war is really about, you experience it firsthand, you experience losing people, you say that you could train for the rest of your life and be just as happy. When you see it firsthand, the mind state that changes on you. Before we talked about you weren't fatalistic, but you thought, I'm not going to live past 20. You see this in real life. You see what's going on, the destruction, the the things that are being done to people, the unspeakable things. Does it go back to that thought, or does it completely change your way of thinking in, into maybe even more of a positive way? Yeah. Well, first, for, for Desert Storm, for me, um, and I think everybody in my platoon would agree that our training in Desert Shield was a hell of a lot harder than Desert Storm. Um, you know, we, we got to see some of the direct uh, destruction. What I took away from the Desert Storm is literally my empathy for the enemy grew in Desert Storm. Um, I felt, you know, damn, I'm glad I'm, I'm on this side right here. And after 40 days of bombing and seeing the aircraft fly over and, you know, they, it was out of direct eyesight, but you could see the flashes and hear the booms for 40 days. I was just never more proud to be an American, but I was empathetic for, for the Iraqis. And the first wounded Iraqi I saw um, was a Republican Guard tank captain. And I remember, I mean, I can picture him like it, like I'm looking at him right now. Very handsome man, like the Iraqis I saw on other tours, you know, big mustache and leather jacket. And, and his eyes were kind of darting around. And, and, you know, I had nothing but empathy for that guy and just thought, you know, that could be me laying on a damn stretcher. That could be one of our pilots laying on a stretcher somewhere. And we are just adamantly, you know, going to take care of that guy and respect him, got him medevaced and, you know, obviously never heard what happened to him. I'm confident he survived that fight, but um, that, that's what I, what, what sticks in my mind about Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Um, a lot of great learning, you know, validated my training um, that, that we put together as, as a platoon. And again, another layer of that foundation of how I, opted to train going forward. Um, now, when I came back from Desert Storm, um, we had a, a number of changes of command and I got a phenomenal company commander. And, you know, then Lieutenant Colonel Petraeus came in as a battalion commander. Um, he'd been away from the infantry a long time, but he was also a very intelligent man that, that tapped into people. And he also innately got the most out of people that that's what he does is gets the most out of people um so i had a lot of latitude working for him um and and had opportunities to have a really outsized impact on the battalion going forward from desert storm and that was a very good experience 
as you see it, you said you come back, you get a good company commander, you get a good battalion commander. Does your thoughts on war change? I know you said that you could you could do training for the rest of your life and be just as happy. I mean it in a deeper level, though. Does your does your mindset on war, when you look at what you've trained for for your entire adult life, everything you've gone to school for, everything you've done, you've seen the end effects of it. Does it change the way you think at all? It, the, the only the, the things that changed in me is how I wanted to prepare units for combat. And I early in my life in the Rangers and then as a lieutenant validated that there are certain things that infantrymen need to be need to focus on. And the Rangers came up with the big five, but it's basically shoot, move, communicate, treat and lead. That's what you need to do as an infantryman. You have a comparatively high turnover. Your team is always changing. Um, there is really no one, and I'll talk to anyone in the Army, that I think has done more live fire iterations than I have. I don't believe it is so. Um, I mean, I kept track of them as, as a lieutenant captain major, and I was very aggressive on live fires, doing 700 and some iterations um, when I was a lieutenant. Um, at, at squad and platoon level and in training other platoons to go through my live fires. Um, that was in one rating period because there's a form we've got to fill out that says, hey, what you what you accomplish? Um, and I kept track of that. Um, and it wasn't a mark of a badge of honor. It was just like, I we have to do this. You have to be comfortable firing bullets, good at it, and you have to be comfortable with other people doing that at night. So where many training models are, you know, people are afraid to get their unit in, into a very good training cycle. Um, I would get through day blank, day live iterations, hot washes after each one, and then go day live, day live, or day live, hot wash, day live, hot wash, day live, and just keep repetitions. Because repetitions, I think, breeds... Um, you know, good habits and, and familiarity. And then, but you're always going to multiple, multiple iterations at night when we fight. Um, and a lot of people are intimidated by that. And, and that's my question to you. You're doing that, but a lot of other people aren't doing that. Yeah. You know, in, in, it'll be fun reading the comments on this, but I'll talk to anybody. Um, People, people know I, I, I train good organizations, and I, I'm probably coming across as too arrogant on that. Not, not, not at all. I, I think the point, though, is, Bill, is that there is a an inequality in the training. You have people that are willing to put it out on the line, do as much as possible. You said that possibly sometimes you may be even overtrained. But then you have the flip of that coin and you have the people that don't want to ever do it. So how do you get to that that base level that, you know, where we're meeting the standard and possibly slightly above it by everybody? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'd focus on my units and be the best teammate I could be to adjacent units, to sister, whether it's platoons when I was a you know lieutenant, other platoons would go through my live fires. Now that's pretty common, and I'd go through their live fires, but 
I set them up and largely be in charge of company and, you know, battalion live fires many times um, at a young age. And then as a battalion commander, as we were prepping to go to Iraq and then it changed to Afghanistan, I had multiple peers of mine come through our live fire, convoy live fire exercises. And again, this, this isn't about beating Bill Oslin's chest. This is about t having great relationships with teammates and saying, by all means, we, we can certainly figure this out. Why do we want to do that? Because, you know, in, in my case, one of my close friends is Major General Jeff, Jeff Milhorn was our, you know, engineer route clearance commander. He had a bunch of um, hodgepodge, I'll say in his STB, but <laughs> very important hodgepodge, like route clearance platoons. And, you know, it was absolutely critical. Our artillery teammates, um, you know, that's not the ballywick of the king of battle to do a maneuver live fire. But, you know, what it is, is he fired 36,000 rounds or, you know, part of the 36,000 rounds of indirect fire. So I'd rather, you know, him come through my range and learn what he needs to do to move to, from point to A to point B and spend as much time as he can getting accurate fires um, out of tubes. You know, that, that's just teamwork to make the, the, the bigger team more effective. Um, and I enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed that. And I would like to think that none of my peers um, that, that did train with me, you know, thought, thought I was, you know, keeping score on them. What I was doing is, you know, try, trying to be the best teammate and, and make them as effective as they could be. And, and at the same time, let me play to my strength as maneuver trainer. You play to your strength and all these special skills that are going to support us when we go overseas. And it worked out. It, I mean, very, very, very good teammates um, across the board. As you move on, you uh, are going to go back Operation Enduring Freedom. Now, you're going to go to Iraq, I think is what they tell you first, uh, and, but then they switch it to Afghanistan, right? Yeah. we were. Uh, it was about March. We were going to deploy in, in a June time frame, and we were, were literally up training. My battalion was, um, I think, the, and then a brigade came up and joined us. Um, and we got the word very short notice. Uh, a lot of things happened. Um, the surge was happening in Iraq. There was going to be a surge in Afghanistan. So we were called in. Brigade commander told us, hey, we're changing from Huija, Iraq, which I was very familiar with from my first tour in Iraq um, or my Operation Iraqi Freedom Tour and um, to this place called Kunar, Afghanistan, or our brigade was going to N2KL, which is the letters of the provinces we we're going to be involved in. Um, and that, that wasn't even really a blip on my radar screen. Um, you know, again, I think you got to shoot, move, communicate, treat, and lead. That night, I called in my company commanders and said, hey, we're going to Afghanistan. Um, I don't think any of them had been, none of them had been there yet. And I said, gave gave a new order, um, and we did a company attack on three separate objectives, dismounted after we had been doing a lot of mounted stuff, and we executed that 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 night, um, blank fire exercise, and uh, and it was phenomenal um, exercise. But that was our mental transition to going from a mounted to dismounted fight. We did it in a few hours. Um, and then we just kept doing dismounted live fires. And I flew out to Afghanistan, 
Um, every opportunity I get, I sing 310, 3rd um, Brigade, 10th Mountains Praises, commanded by a now retired uh, four-star general, Mick Nicholson, phenomenal leader, brought us in there, trained us, taught us, really acad um, good academics. Then he passed me off to the battalion commander I was replacing was Chris Cavoli. Chris Cavoli is now four-star general and uh, going to be, I'm sure, going to be confirmed as the Supreme Allied Commander Europe if he hasn't done so already. But Chris set an exceptionally high bar on how to take in a unit and, and get them best prepared to replace him, um, which had an impact on me as we talk about Wanat. Um, you know, what's the bar to prepare the people following you to be most successful? Chris set that bar very high. Um, and then I went back to the training area in Germany a few days later and pulled in all staff sergeants and above and briefed them on, hey, this is what the fight is. Here's a slideshow. This is what it looks like. This is what we're doing. I think our training plan is right, but we've got to spend more time humping in the mountains and take advantage and, and get tougher than we are. And it, that was our transition. When you go there, I, I want to, how old are your kids at this point? Um, they were seven and nine when I deployed, and then I had my youngest was born by cesarean section 10 days before I left. Okay, so this is where I want to go into this. Yeah. There was a speech that you gave in front of your children, your wife, uh, and, and your troops, and it went to the something, I'm going to maybe butcher it a little bit, but it went to something as in, uh, when we leave here, we go over to where we're going, I'm going to care about you guys as much or more than I care about these guys sitting right here. I think a lot of people took that the wrong way when they hear that story, but to hear you explain what you meant by it, because you said that you used this speech numerous times in your career. I, I would like you to explain it because as you put context to it, it gives it a whole new meaning. Yeah. Um, two things on what, what I said in an auditorium with, all of my paratroopers from the rock, some of their family members who had come to see them off. And we were a few days from deploying and I had my wife, seven, nine year old and uh, my 10 month old in her arms and they were in the front row and my wife, phenomenal military wife. She's a former private first class um, and uh, very much, you know, is also, um, in, into supporting our community. And I said, I said, hey, in a few short days, I'm gonna care more about you paratroopers than I care about these three boys in this front row. Um, I didn't mean it to hurt my wife. My kids were too young to understand what I was saying that time. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't um, justify it, but I don't apologize for it because what I meant is in my mind, those three boys were going to be in very good hands in their mother's arms. And, and she's, you know, a lion, <laughs> lioness, um, they would be fine. But I felt the responsibility for those 811 paratroopers, you know, right or wrong. And I know I have a lot of layers protecting those young paratroopers, but I felt I was the person responsible for each of them. And, and I owed them that. 
and unapologetically, I guess, um, you know, I, I did love those soldiers, as, you know, like, like my sons, I won't say as much or more or anything, but like I, and they were all men, by the way, I did have some females come through that section, but these were all young men um, that I asked an incredible amount of, and they delivered everything I asked and more. So at the conclusion of that tour, when I was talking to these men, and I talked to them daily, but at the conclusion, I said, you did everything I asked and more. You each accorded yourselves exceptionally well, and I will forever be in your debt. Um, and to that end, we have an incredible bond, you know, many of them, us, and I've written probably 400 letters of recommendation or whatever for applications and everything, because um, I can clearly articulate what each did. I have the records and, and I know. Um, so that's what I meant by that. That's the thing that stands out to me, though, and that's why I had you explain that, because you say unapologetically, and that goes without saying, but you talk about caring about them as much. There's so many layers. You say it yourself. There's so many layers between you and those soldiers of people that are protecting them. And you've got to understand, I know you as a smart man, you have to know that there's nothing you can do with all those layers in between you to take full responsibility for that. So I guess I'm just trying to figure out when I hear your story, this is the most interesting parts of your story to me. It's not the combat stories. It's how you approach these soldiers, whether that be at West Point, whether these guys going into combat, you take them on. And I said it in your opening as an extended family. I just got to understand at some point though, you have to separate yourself from that. Yeah. But, well, there, there's some things only I can do. Um, only I can be a shield from higher nonsense. Only I at that time could approve certain fires, medevacs, distribute non-lethal effects like money. Um, and, and I'm, was pretty credible to, so I could get what I needed most of the time, but not always. And I, when I failed to get what I needed, not what I wanted, but when I failed to get what I needed, it had detrimental effects on my paratroopers. And that is my responsibility. You know, I, I don't pass it up. I don't, Hey, the brigade commander let me down here. General so-and-so let me down here. It doesn't work that way. Somebody's got to take it. You know, there were many a times I wish other people above me would have owned a few things and, and taken it to the same degree that I thought they should have. Um, but that doesn't let me off the hook for doing every single thing I can do for the people under my charge. Um, and at times that went to adjacent units. I do feel that, I mean, that's part of army culture is to, um, be a good teammate and, and care about your adjacent unit. You know, the most honorable mission that I've done in my life is recover a staff sergeant's body in another squadron sector because they were just unable, um, to do it. Um, and you know, we would arrest our entire battalion to police that individual up. And as it was, we 
rest a company plus. Um, fortunately, we didn't take any casualties. Uh, you know, the threat, me and two others fell out of a helicopter, and, and that was okay. That was, you know, scrapes and bumps, and we were we were comparatively okay. Um, but by and point, you were a jump master, so yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you I'm sure you could roll very well when you hit the ground. Yeah, it, it, it was okay. Well, I didn't I didn't leave the battlefield. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the point is, is that, yeah, there is a sense of responsibility and, and I'm not the only, you know, I'm not like the lone ranger out there that only feels this way. I know plenty of people that, that feel this way and do it as well as I do or better. Um, you know, and unfortunately I know a few that don't, um, but that's, you know, that, that's not my responsibility. My responsibility is, is down and in and as much out left and right as I can, as, as is tolerated. And, and, and I guess the point that I'm driving at with that, though, is that when, when you take on that much responsibility, when you let it build in your mind that much, that has got to be overwhelming at points. Yeah, I, di- I didn't feel that. Um, I, I felt... Uh, you know, that, that, that was just, that was just part of, of me, you know, part of my DNA. I suppose if you're a brilliant person, um, and have just an incredibly strong mind, you don't, you don't know you're brilliant. Likewise, if you're not smart, you don't really know that it's just part of you, right? Um, you know, you might be able to look left and right and go, man, I'm, I'm not as smart as that guy, but you know, you, you, it's, I think it's really hard to, to know, you know, um, I don't know, to, to analyze what is part of your DNA, what is, what is really inside your heart. Now, if you're faking it and you're going out and giving a rah-rah speech and you don't, you know, really feel that way, I mean, then you know it. But if you, you feel that, I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think it, you can separate that from, you know, from your body or feel, I didn't feel overwhelmed. Um, and you know that went to the resilience and how we we attack things as an organization not how i did but as we you know attack things how do we deal with casualties how do we continue to go outside the wire for you know 50 416 days and 1100 contacts and you know people mathematicians out there figured out man we were in combat for 416 days we were in 1100 contacts with the enemy uh, we did 5,400 fire missions, shooting 36,000 rounds, and we did 3,800 aerial deliveries. I mean, that was it was real combat almost every day. I think we didn't have contact like 10 days or something like that in 416. And some of that was, you know, far off sniper fire, machine gun burst. But a lot of it was battles, you know, um, and and we were a pretty combat tested um, organization. And, you know, the Sykes looked at us before, during and after. And I'll talk about Brian O'Leary, our brigade psych at some point. But, uh, you know, the Army studied us because we were in combat and we didn't have anybody killed by an IED. When, you know, the unit that replaced us had six people killed before we left country. Every unit before and after had people killed with an IED. We didn't have anybody that committed suicide. We didn't have friendly fire incidents in the sense that we fired 
and, and our effects hit people. We had one green on uh, brown on green. A guard shot one of my platoon sergeants, killed him. Um, and uh, we didn't have accidents. We didn't have anybody killed in an accident. We didn't lose any helicopters. There were just some things culturally in the most contested area of in Afghanistan at the time that because we were all in this together from top to bottom, some good shit happened amongst the bad. Um, so. Well, and, and when you talk about that, the 425 days, uh, you said 416 of that was actual combat. When you look at that, though, you got there hours after you got there, uh, your first one was killed, correct? Now, that was the brigade sergeant major's son that was killed. Yeah. Over the entire time, you had 26 soldiers killed, 143 wounded. But I want to point out, this was the most contested area. They made two documentaries about this area and about your units in general. Um, when you have that, I was reading an Army Times article about you. And the way they started the article out was, for more than 400 days in the Kunar province of Afghanistan, Colonel <clears throat> refused to let himself cry. The colonel refused to let himself cry. So when I ask you that before, does it weigh on you? 425 days is a long time. 26 soldiers is a lot to take on. 143. But there's all these other things that you showed your unit did that the other ones did not do. There's got to be a sense of pride from that. Well, there, I mean, there, there's incredible pride in the rock. I mean, I can't, or, or I can't adequately articulate the, the pride that I have in being, you know, rock six, but more so the relationships that I have. Um, I was, because I was an NCO, I, I don't, ha I was never really enamored by rank. Um, and I'd laugh with my, my who was in, you know, from the time I was a lieutenant on, you know, occasionally we'd be jacking around and whether you're doing combatives or training or whatnot, somebody would say something to the effect of, oh, it's just a good thing you're a lieutenant or an officer. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? If we were ganging in, or in LA, I'd still be in charge of you. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, and, but it was fun. It was like, no, I am your leader, and, and that's the way it goes. And um, and I don't mean that arrogantly. It was in, in great fun. And the the pride I have is the relationships I have, um, you know, how we sur still surge as a unit. We didn't have any suicides then. To my knowledge, we didn't have any until three years later, two guys PCS to 82nd Airborne Division and killed themselves within 60, months, 60 days. And it, it, I was well past that unit, and it, it like broke my heart, and and that was the catalyst to us for us to have our 10-year deployment anniversary in 2017 and bring as many people together as we could, and it was very very therapeutic. It wasn't just I mean there was some drinking going on, but it wasn't a, just a drink fest. I mean, we had sessions where we had our old brigade psych who let me tell, tell you about Brian O'Leary and was okay. Brian is still a colonel psych in the U.S. Army, one of the, one of the most respected psychs in the Army because he's done a lot of work on PTS and combat. He's in USASOC now, U.S. Army Special Operations Command. Brian O'Leary is a captain who was the brigade psych 
Brian knew where the combat was happening in the brigade, and he spent about 375 days out of his 425-day tour with my with platoons in my battalion in in our AO out on them to the point I was worried about our psych as he was filming during live fires and turning the camera on himself and saying and these are my boys. Um, you know, so Doc and I had a lot of exchanges. He was keeping me tough, but I'm like, I'm trying to just keep you alive. Um, and, you know, what he did is keep combat power in the fight. And this goes kind of to the PTS thing is that unit, the Rock, had had a pretty hard tour in 05, 06 under a great battalion commander. Um, and then they turned around a year later and went into more hard combat. When I deployed my unit, approximately a third of my people were on psych meds, and there's categories of them. How far forward can you be in combat with these different psych meds? Um, when we left, two-thirds of my unit were on psych meds, and we were, we were just trying to keep combat power in the fight. So between Doc O'Leary and Chaplain Schnarr, both of those two men, were out with these platoons all the time. But the men saw my Sergeant Major, Sergeant Major Brad Myers and I talking to the Sykes and, and, and the chaplains very freely and talking about well-being long before well-being and mental health was, was a, a thing, you know, and I'd tell them, hey, you know, they'd say, hey, sir, I appreciate, you know, you making these resources available, talking to us about this. I'm like, hey, I'm just selfishly trying to keep you healthy enough to keep you in harm's way. And don't thank me for anything. In paratroopers, when they kind of hear that they're not being coddled, kind of appreciate that. When they don't think, um, you know, when they just think it's normal. Hey, this is what we do to stay in the fight. I think it helped people. Um, but then when we got together 10 years later, we had a great session with Doc O'Leary too, and all sorts of crazy stuff came out and what people were struggling with. But surprisingly, all of us were struggling with some of the same stuff, missing that euphoria that, you know, you're never more, I'll never be more alive than I was in Kunar province. Never, never, ever, ever be that alive again. And, you know, to the point, you know, I, I kind of thought that was my pinnacle, right? Is, is you know, may, maybe on that last day is get, get everybody out and maybe maybe I should have, you know, some fallen out of that last helicopter or something. And that's not fatalistic, I don't think. Um, but it was kind of <laughs> kind of how I viewed that, uh, that tour. But the soldiers, I mean, the paratroopers, I, I perhaps arrogantly, or maybe this is my own therapy, is I feel I'm needed by them um, in many cases. And we're, we rally to keep people, you know, that post stuff that say they're in a bad spot or whatnot. Um, we're still a pretty good team in surge on those folks. Take care of them. Well, I want to talk about two things you just said there, because you talked about euphorically and you never felt more alive there. But I'd sent you a couple quotes that I want to discuss. So one, after we discuss this quote, I want you to explain that feeling of euphoria. I want you as best you can to try and bring people into that mind state. But the quote that I want to talk about is you said, I don't think the worst thing in life is to die in combat. Sometimes I wonder, was that my pinnacle? Was that my time? When we lose a soldier in combat, they're forever young. We're going to remember them 
as this young, vibrant paratrooper. At the height of their life, that is how they are preserved in history. There are probably worse things than that. You say not fatalistic, and I agree with you. It's not fatalistic. But I, I, I just am trying to understand the mind state behind that because that is such a prophetic statement to make. And to say that it's euphoric, you've never felt more alive, yet you talk about if you were to die in combat, there's such a paradox there. I just, I'm trying to understand how you feel and to get you to explain to people how you feel, because I think it's a fascinating thing that you say about it. Yeah, I, I think um, deploying, and I, I've enjoyed, and I got to be careful saying that, but I, I've enjoyed the time deployed in, in other areas. But there were certain factors that came together with the rock. Um, I mean, I had a love affair with the rock from the time I was on my first tour with 173rd, I watched now our new vice chief of staff, or he will be soon, Randy George, stood it up with Sergeant Major of the Army Grinston, um, two first people in Iraq. And I was kind of the sister unit, the adjacent unit, watching this go on. Um, and then we deployed to Iraq, and I saw, saw the rock, the culture that then Dom Caracillo and Sergeant Major Rice had in that unit was the rock moves quickly with limited information and accomplishes the mission always. They spend 90% of their time um, integrating resources they have and maximizing their personnel and 10% asking for more so they can deliver more. I just love the culture. I disappeared from 173rd for a couple of years. I went to Stratcom. I was going over 20 years. I was back home in Stratcom in Omaha and you know had a decision to make um that my two sons made for me when they said we hate the air force and want to go back to the army um and then a couple weeks later i came out on the lieutenant colonel list and shortly thereafter on the list to command the rock i i, I was euphoric about that i thought it was the best kind of conventional airborne unit um in the world i just really felt that strongly towards them I came in, you know, we prepped, we went to train. When we got to Kunar, you know, from our first fight, first five hours, we had Timothy Viamoto killed. That bonded us very, very tightly. Timothy was our youngest paratrooper, empirically our youngest paratrooper. He was our brigade sergeant major's oldest son. Um, and, uh, and there was just something that it didn't break in us there was something that just got so much stronger um, after that event and um, before, during, and after. So being alive, I mean, I felt I didn't have aspirations to be a field marshal. I had aspirations to do the best I could with the men I was commanding um, in that fight. And, and we weren't just, you know, we got accused of, um, you know, delivering too much firepower. You know, I always said, hey, it's the fourth smallest province in Afghanistan, but there's plenty of room for one more. You want to come from any corner of the earth and join us and show me how to do it better? Please, please come and join us. So living, I mean, again, calling the fires, having the shuras with the population. We also spend 80% of the brigade's budget trying to make a better life 
for the, for the Afghans. Um, building girls' schools. I mean, it sounds kind of soft at the same time. I'm calling for fire, probably killing their brothers and uncles. Um, but, hey, you know, that, that that's the fight we were in. Um, you know, flying into these areas, meeting with people, patrolling with, with just great, great Americans, um, laughing with them. Um, that, that was the pinnacle of being alive. Um, what about, hey, what about dying in combat? Again, you know, I, I wouldn't wish it on any family. And I am not trying to say, hey, well, it's not so bad. Yeah. You know, I got got the opportunity to think about that every day when my son was in Iraq, hardest deployment I've been on. Um, but I know if he fell doing what he wanted to do, I would honor that young man for the rest of my life. And he wouldn't be a day older because I'd have pictures of him from when he deployed. And, and that's how I would remember him forever. Now we're 15 years past Timothy Viamoto's death. I'm very close with his family. Um, and Timothy, yeah, he never got to buy a house. He never got to buy a car. He never got to legally drink a beer. He never got to go to college, never got to have kids, never got to marry. Um, but the best we can do is say, but doggone, look at that paratrooper. And, uh, and he's barrel-chested, flat-bellied, thick-legged freedom fighter forever. Um, and that's how we'll remember him. Now, one thing I did do um, is um, we, we, we made a hell of a rock yearbook before we left. We had everybody take a professional picture. A lot of paratroopers don't like to wear their doodads on their uniform, but I made them do it. Um, and a lot of the paratroopers didn't buy those photos, but you know what? An awful lot of moms bought them. And those, those pictures were invaluable to the Gold Star mothers and Gold Star wives. Um, and I've got the yearbook up on my shelf here, but doggone is it ever therapeutic to look through that. And we have all our KIAs on their own individual page. Um, and it, it is a good reminder of, hey, you know, could be worse things could come back from that deployment. And hell, four people just got killed on I-25, I four miles from me um, today. You know, nobody's going to really remember them other than their families. And I'm not taking away from that. But th those friends aren't going to remember them the same way I'm going to remember those paratroopers. I want to talk about one other quote that you said and kind of wrap up your combat uh, store, you know, the, the, the ideas that you brought from combat, the, the emotions that you brought through. This was the most interesting quote that I heard of you. It said, I have killed enemies of our country who threatened our way of life with no remorse. I'm responsible for killing innocents. And for that, I am sorry. Morally, I don't take it as a game. I make the comment. I am only the one to, excuse me. I am the only one on the blame line here. I haven't gotten a pass on the Ten Commandments. There is a day when I've got to reconcile with that. That's deep. That's very deep. And it's something that I, I, I ask you about whenever you said, you know, let's talk about what we're going to talk about. And I said the PTS thing. That, to me, not fatalistic, not anything like that. But that very much screams PTS to me. Yeah. Or 
it, it could scream, hey, I, I've got a conscience and, you know, I, I think there's some things to atone for. Um, and at least not get too frisky about celebrating. I worry more about people that, you know, talk about, I mean, people that talk about killing other people, um, whether it's indirect fires or direct fire engagements, Right. I think they have more more PTS flags than than, than that. Absolutely. I have, uh, you know, I was I was raised a Catholic through confirmation. Um, uh, you know, we were told to write a letter um, to the priest. I poured my heart and soul into it because I was pretty wasn't a good Catholic, but I, I was kind of a believer. And you know, my mom would choke if she heard this, but. Um, you know, I, I, could have easily, I could have easily been recruited to be a priest. I mean, that's just a whole different form of leadership, right? Or another form of leadership. If you're a good priest, and hell, God knows they, they need good leadership in the Catholic Church. Um, but the thing is, that priest never wrote me back, never gave me any feedback. And I, I, I had to have written the longest letter about my beliefs than any, anybody else. Nobody gave me any feedback. And I stepped back from that and decided, hey, I'm going to be more spiritual than religious. Um, I do believe there's a higher power. Um, and I believe that in the Ten Commandments, right, wrong, or otherwise. Um, and, and I think when you violate those, you know, at some point in time, you got you got to come up and, and uh, you know, either atone or, or, or get a pass, one of the two. Now, when I say this to chaplains and counselors and, you know, people on here may feel inclined to point out things in the Bible and everything. Oh, you know, this is sanctioned war for good cause, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But you know what? <laughs> I, I think somebody named Moses carried something down from a hilltop with like 10 books he got from somewhere. <laughs> it was pr pr pretty clear intent. You know, I'm kind of an intent and effects based and uh, both of those kind of line up. So this is just something. I've got to deal with. But then there's a, there's a more practical point to this is people take the, the lead of the commander. And I'd say if they respect the commander, they, they take it more seriously and longer. Um, I knew we were in serious business. I knew every single fire mission we were, could be investigated. We could get raked over the coals. We could hurt, you know, innocent people. We could hurt people that were guilty as hell, um, that were, you know, had, were, were later told they were innocent, whatever. Um, or we were told there's a whole lot to that. Establishing a culture of being serious and not taking killing other human beings as, as a joke or as a game. Um, you know, if, if I did some serious introspection, there were probably some kinetic strikes that I was euphoric about. But I, people cannot give you an example of when I, I was overtly, you know, euphoric at, at the demise of some human being. And, I, and that is part of conscience, I think. And, um, you know, setting that example. Um, so if there did, if something did go awry, nobody was going to come back and say our unit was kind of 
willy-nilly with fires. And some people tried to say that because we use fires so much. Well, they're just out there. I'm like, again, come on out and see how we conduct operation. Don't just sit, you know, 200 miles away in an air-conditioned building eating ice cream telling me what you think. Come out and look. And the people that came out and looked realized we were pretty serious about our business and we were pretty good at our business. I mean, I, I know a number in my head how many people I think I've removed from this planet, um, not personally looking them in the eye, but calling approving fires, a, a, a crew, uh, approving strike force operations. Um, I, I've got a pretty good idea, and, and that does weigh on me. Um, and a lot of those people were bad people, but not all of them. Um, some bad people keep their families too close to them. Sometimes rounds sail right three inches over a ridge line, and surprisingly, those are the most catastrophic rounds. Um, when I'm trying to hit bad people, <laughs> I don't get the effects that we have when we make a mistake, when we make an error, um, and those are just good people in the wrong spot, um, and we can't take that lightly. We investigate everyone in America. Um, I guarantee the Russians, and nobody's asking the Russians to be accountable for what they're doing in Ukraine. But doggone, people come after us um, about every single one, you know, the Red Cross, and that's fine. That's fine. We should investigate and justify and stay well above, above that bar in my mind. But, Bill, I think it should be pointed out what you're uh, alluding to in, in investigations and things like that. That was all finalized and, and it was deemed everything was justified. Oh, but I, I'm talking about, I mean, every time we have an accusation. Absolutely. Of a civilian casualty in, in our army, we investigate. A field grade officer investigates it. And it's not a whitewash. I mean, it's a pain in the ass, too. And right. We put, people, we put people in harm's way to go out to areas many times to investigate what what heck we know is 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 the truth but they've got to get on the ground and that's a pretty high moral bar um to the point that is it, is it moral to put people in harm's way to do that um it, you know could could be the question turn around but I'm, hey I'm, I'm fine with that system you know on the other investigation on on why not i mean that that's a whole nother podcast in a sense. I mean, there's so that, that is so complex. Um, but heck, I, I can narrow that down pretty quickly if, if you have time, if you want to talk about that at all. Otherwise, um, that's that's completely up to you. Uh, the yeah. the thing that was that stuck out to me about that was uh, the way I looked at it. And I'm looking in from the outside, but I'm I'm looking at it from not necessarily a law enforcement, but an investigative look. And when, when they say everything is good, everything is bad. Okay. Everything is good. Okay. We can clear everyone from that. It seems almost rushed and knee jerked in a lot of parts of that investigation. Yeah. Now what you're talking about is the battle of why not. So for, for context, for people on, we were in a 425 day, 15 month tour. Um, Two, and a, two weeks um, from our return home, I had paratroopers that had already sent their bags home. Families, of course, are getting ready for everybody to come home. In, at month 14 and a half, um, we had the Battle of Wanat. 
um, and I'll set the context back a little bit after this. But the Battle of Wanat had nine, nine Americans killed and in, in 27 wounded. It was the largest loss of life before we evacuated um, Kabul Airport, ground largest combat, uh, ground combat loss in, in one battle. Um, and I'm not proud of that. But the context of that was from the PDSS in March of 07 through my first briefing in August of 07, for 11 months, I was trying to move two air centric bases. I couldn't get the resources to do that until the 14 and a half month mark. I got the resources because the unit coming behind me that said that they couldn't do what we were doing. They couldn't occupy a particular base that was 18 kilometers north of my headquarters. So I wanted to pull them back to eight kilometers north of my headquarters to an area that was accessible by Humvee, reinforceable, I could resupply and I could medevac. The planning had been going on in detail, in detail, since March of 08 for that. Engineer surveys, um, JFUB packets, which are packets um, of, I can tell you how many two by fours were needed to, to build this base. It was ridiculous level of detail um that that we had to go through um you know people love seeing you know the 900 page binder of information about one now what happened is those people got killed uh investigator um like i always do when americans are killed interviewed everybody associated with the battle every survivor got a statement from 73 people and found it was a it was a tactical victory at a tragically high cost. Everything was done that needed to be done. Um, a second investigation was done by 101st Airborne Division. They found the same thing. A year later, I left uh, Afghanistan in, in August of 08. I went back, moved my family to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, and I was back in Afghanistan in October 08. Um, with the 75th Ranger Regiment. Um, a year later, I rotated um, in, in July of 08, or July of 09, I was commanding the Counterterrorism Task Force. I had been flocked to 06 to full colonel. I was the only guy, infantry guy in my year group to be promoted early three times. Um, I was flocked. I had a Delta Squadron, a SEAL Team 6 Squadron, a Ranger Battalion. Special Operations Aviation, and uh, about a thousand intel and interagency people working for me. I got called in July of 09, approximately a year after the battle, um, and told there was going to be a big investigation, a big news story was going to break, um, and uh, and it did. And then I spent the next two and a half years going through five more investigations. Um, and it was driven by Gold Star, a couple of Gold Star parents. Um, and, and that's their right. That's their right. But between the parents and the final investigator, um, Lieutenant General Natonsky, who we should all know his name, said, we failed to plan, me, I failed to plan, failed to resource, failed to, to supervise, and that led to the, the, the Battle of the Wanai. All empirically false. 
it was very politically driven, um, you know, and again, I'll provide all this um, as, as we move forward in life. Um, but I was able to justify, hey, if it's a political outcome, it'll be what it is. If you're interested in, in the truth, here, here's what we did. Um, I don't blame the brigade commander. People wanted me to do that. I didn't blame the division um, staff. And, you know, people probably know it was General Milley and General McConville, the, the chairman and the chief of staff of the Army today. I didn't blame them. If I did, you probably had never heard their names. Um, because they, they weren't malicious. They did not fail to support me because they, they didn't. It was just about priorities. It was about priorities. Um, so um, as it all turned out, General Natonsky, in my mind, very, very dishonest man, um, you know, went with the political winds. He could never stand on this podcast or in front of me and um, tell me that, hey, here's the evidence because it wasn't there. Um, and, uh, and that's why I was able to, um, you know, dispute that at the end of the day. Now, so why, what, what, what's the, what's the point of this? The point is, goes back to that quote about, you know, loving the people that I'm serving with is in that tour, I had recommended three living humans for the medal of honor. None of those were approved until a couple of months after I was cleared. We were put in for a presidential unit citation and a valorous unit award. They weren't approved until I was cleared. I wasn't fighting only for my family, my you know, organic family and my reputation that started in Minnesota with my grandfather and my father. I wasn't just fighting for that. Because plenty of people, including my wife, said, is this even worth it? I was fighting for them. The, the thread between a Distinguished Service Cross and a Medal of Honor is non-existent, is non-existent. It would have been very easy to go ahead and say, no, all those are just downgraded to Distinguished Service Cross. No appeal on that. Just keep moving out would have happened. I, I know it would have happened because I fought for the men that fought for me and I fought as hard as they did or tried to were known as the most decorated unit in the global war. And, you know, subsequently I served purposefully on my own timeline for 10 years and one month as a Colonel. Now there's not a lot of people that get to do that but I was serving, wearing 06 rank for 10 years and one month on active duty. And I enjoyed every single day of it. And there's a lot of empowerment being what we call a terminal colonel, knowing there's, I'm not going to get confirmed, not after all that shit storm. It's just not going to happen. Um, you know, but, uh, but that's okay because I had a reputation with a lot of, you know, the senior leadership of the army. I still do. Um, and people know, you know, Hey, I, I don't need people to say, Oh, you got screwed over. Oh, woe is you, you know, my, my quote on that or my, my retort is life isn't fair, but neither is death. I got the opportunity to spend, you know, almost six years in combat. Timothy Viamoto got six hours. You know, 
life's not fair, neither is death. Um, so I, I'm not bitter about this. I, I am, you know, disappointed and in, in have the moxie enough to say, I think General Natansky was absolutely purposefully wrong. And why, why, why am I adamant about that? And why can anybody call him and he can call me? Because he purposefully hurt our Gold Star families. That's why. He gave them, you know, some fictitious narrative about, you know, things that I did wrong, my company commander did wrong. Um, it was supported up that, you know, through General Petraeus and everybody. They, they all could have looked at, I mean, you as a police officer, <laughs> anybody can look at this binder and go, gosh, that's, that's a false claim from start to finish. Anybody could have done it. Well, and, and, and that's the whole thing to me about this is that you have this career and we're going to talk about the last part of it with West Point, but like you said, a terminal Colonel, maybe not angry, maybe not bitter. Are you ever disappointed? I mean, I'm thinking about it just from my point of view. Like if it were me, I, I, I think I would be, I'm, I want to be honest. I think I would be disappointed. Um, I mean, I'm disappointed because if, if I would have been promoted, I could have served longer. Right. I, I would have, um, the army could have easily got 70 hours a week out of me and my family for many, many more years. Um, if, you know, I would have been promoted there with those same people, I mean, going up, I mean, again, um, you know, I would have had a, had a fairly decent career. I would have loved to be you know, in charge of Fort Benning and, and, uh, and be responsible for all the training of infantrymen. You know, I, I didn't need to want to be a field marshal. I wanted to have more of an impact as a, as a trainer. Um, I'd done enough operating. If, if the Army said you didn't get the opportunity to do that, that was fine. What was the next best thing? What was the last thing I could do? Go to West Point, right? Um, where these kids, I call them kids, I, I love them to death, but these cadets are going to grow up. And 1,000 of them are going to go out and impact 40 young humans. So, I mean, every year they're going out and they're, they're impacting, you know, <laughs> a large portion of the Army. So training them right, having fun and showing them that the Army's a good, good place, not being bitter, not sniveling about why not, um, respecting our soldiers that were fallen and that are serving, doing those things. And being a dream maker, you know, I was able to send kids to – to scuba school and halo school and air assault school and airborne school and go serve with this unit and do that. Um, it was fun. It, it was, I mean, just a really, really rewarding thing. Um, disappointed. Yeah. May, maybe disappointed that I didn't get to serve that long, but you know, I never carried a sense of entitlement um, to work. I just, I didn't, I don't, you know, I don't think I did. Um, I was rewarded. One of the things that I've said before is I was adamant about not bashing the system that had rewarded me so well. And God, if that doesn't piss me off sometimes, you know, um, peers that are, you know, rewarded at every single turn, but the first time things go sideways for them, you know, the whole world is wrong. Well, I don't know. You know, I, I knew what the game was. I knew what the system was. 
Um, it rewarded me and my family at every turn. I literally got to go to every single assignment I wanted to go. First choice every single time. You know, so when things didn't work out well for me in, uh, you know, why not? And, and, you know, I'm associated with nine people getting killed in a battle. I'm okay with that because, you know what, I was responsible for every single thing that happened in that area. So, hey, I, I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with them dying. People have asked me, knowing what you know now, would, would have you, you know, went into the Battle of Wanot? Would have you done that? Okay, stupid question, right? I mean, yeah, no, knowing what I knew then, would I redo it again? Yeah, yeah because we had to get them out of Bella and, and set up the new unit coming in, at least as well as Chris Cavoli set me up when I came in. Um, or knowing what I knew then, yeah, I think I made the right decision. Knowing what I know now, I don't know. You know, am I gonna say, yeah, I'd go ahead and do it because I know nine people are gonna die. Um, you know, nine great young Americans are gonna die. No, I mean, that that's... Well, that's an unfair, and it's a it's not only an unfair, it's a stupid question to ask. Of course, if you knew, there, there's so many different factors, and you could what if that all day. But it, it's it's amazing to me how how much of a good attitude, though, you kept behind that. And you went to West Point, and you said that it was one of your favorite assignments and that you're training the next generation, hopefully – like we talked about in the very beginning of this, hopefully they carry all those things that we've talked about during this whole conversation, that blue collar mentality, that work, that being in front of their troops, taking them in as family. Hopefully that happens and we get back to that equal line like we were talking about. When one person's doing it like crazy over here and the other person's not, hopefully from your training, from your mentoring that that happens. Well, I, you know, I just got a call yesterday, last night, from a young former cadet. He was really the first cadet I met when I went back to, as a colonel. I was out the, the first day I went out to the field because they were in summer training. I just wanted to, you know, get excited. Um, so he came running up to me and he told me what his dreams and aspirations are. And it's great now that he's been graduated for four years, you know, most of those are coming. He's getting ready to go to special forces, uh, training and he's, he's all excited. But what I have said about West Point is out of only great assignments, again, got to go to every assignment I wanted to go to, but out of only great assignments, my most rewarding assignment was, was teaching at West Point, really both tours. As, as a captain, um, I just, you know, now those cadets are, are brigade commanders. Um, not too long ago, um, six incoming brigade commanders and I were on a uh, call. They asked just to talk about brigade command and a couple of them were my former cadets. Um, and that, I mean, there, there's very little things outside of family, organic family that, that could be more rewarding than that. Um, and, you know, to, to have those touches. Um, and after I left as a captain, not two weeks went by through my whole entire career where I didn't have a positive interaction with a former cadet. And that's why I say it was the most rewarding. And as a non-West Point graduate, I honestly believe when our nation is at peril, in peril, our nation turns to the United States Military Academy graduates 
to navigate us out of peril. And I believe that. If you look, when was our nation in peril? The Civil War. Both Lee and Grant were West Point graduates. Okay. Our nation was in peril at World War in World War II. Eisenhower, MacArthur, Bradley, you know, Patton. Hell, you had Hap Arnold, who was the chief of staff of the Air Force, Army Air Corps, and then, and then you know, the Army or, you know, in the Army and then the, of, of the Air Force when it came to being, something like that. James Gavin, you know, the, the, the uh, doggone father of the Airborne, youngest general in World War II. Um, certainly good people from other commissioning sources. Um, and I thought I was at least as good as, as, you know, many of the West Pointers I served with, but that does not detract from the point that, that that academy is a leadership laboratory. And sometimes, sometimes they forget their purpose. There are people up there, you know, that, that think it's, it's about, you know, how, how many high power um, scholarships, Rhodes Scholars and Eisenhower Scholars, et cetera, can we get? Some people think it's a football school. And I'll tell you what, Jeff Munkin, the coach up there, he thinks it's a damn military academy and he has a good football program. You know what I mean? But some people think that, that it's, it's something else. Um, none of these things, academic, military, um, athletics are, are mutually exclusive. And that, that's what I brought there. And I had a great boss that's heading back up there. Um, I won't say his name because, you know, they got all these confirmations and all that stuff. But uh, West Point, I'll, I'll tell you what, it's been in good hands for the last few years um, with with, uh, with the suit, General Williams, and it's going to be in at least as good a hands uh, in, in the coming years. So I'm very as a non-West Pointer, but as an American that appreciates what that academy does, I'm very excited for our academy, our, our army, and our country um, going forward. Well, if we can, can we talk about post-retirement for you? You uh, kind of got another really cool position in life uh, after you retired, and uh, you're kind of doing what you wanted to do. So if you can talk about that a little bit, because... A big thing that we talk about on the show is that that second chapter in the book uh, and and you're living your best life right now, retired and, and a great job and a great future. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for that, DJ. And, and I do. I enjoy talking about this. And, you know, I know, um, you know, I, I get reached out to on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find and, and really I enjoy talking to what I say and, and encourage military folks is use the word transition um, because few of us can, <laughs> in government work can really retire, right? There's only only a couple I've met that can, but, um, you know, I accepted transition as a reality. I mean, I was, again, you know, hanging on there. I, I was facing mandatory retirement, but um, my boss at West Point had just told me, hey, Bill, we can extend you beyond mandatory retirement. You could stay here a long time. Um, and now I think the guy in my position, I think they get to retire with the honorary title of general or something. Um, not something I was interested in doing, having, you know, like the same amount of time as a staff sergeant, right? Like 24 <laughs> hours or something. Um, yeah, it wasn't real. That wasn't a real motivator for me. And I thought DMI six, Department of Military Instruction leader, commander, whatever director, should uh, be relevant to the Army, not just be some old dude. Um, but uh, so I, I got a call, and for everybody on here, 
you know, your transition started sometime in high school or after shortly after when you started building your reputation as a professional first responder or professional military person. Um, based on, um, you know, previous assignments, um, I was invited to apply for a job at, uh, at, at Google and in YouTube. Um, a, a few months after there was a shooting on YouTube. And this shooting on 3 April 2018 really transformed YouTube, Google, but, but the larger Silicon Valley. Um, and people put a lot of energy into security. So I had that opportunity um, to come in and interview. And everybody at Google, I mean, you got to make your own way. It's a pretty standardized board and it's pretty rigorous. Um, but I, I, I eked in under the wire and, and opted to transition. And I tell people, and I told her, is uh, I was fortunate to meet with the CEO of YouTube pretty frequently. And she honestly was one of the you know best leaders that I had worked for. And I was first the strategy for strategist for YouTube security, <coughs> excuse me, then the global security manager for YouTube under a director of YouTube security. Um, over the last three years, now I'm a global security manager for security operations readiness. And right or wrong, I say that's kind of like being a Fort Benning of Google is I get to train tactical response, um, incident response, incident command, incident management, um, and in uh, kind of our tactical teams working through um, numerous, working through and with numerous parties again not because he's ever going to listen to this but but again I, I work for another new director who's phenomenal i didn't work for phenomenal bosses <laughs> back to back in the army very often uh, occasionally it was really really good and then it was well maybe really really bad yeah i, I wouldn't say that but maybe, maybe it was just perception <laughs> I'll, right this i'll say it for so, you <laughs> yeah this guy was so good that this guy's having a hard time right Maybe, maybe that's how it was. I don't know. Um, but the, these are some really good people. Um, and, you know, so so it's an enjoyable job. And I was just talking, you know, and again, I talked about four people a week on this. And within my first few minutes in Google, everybody goes through Googler training, new, new Googler training. And one of the first quotes that went up was information democratizes the world. And on that first day, first few minutes, I thought, you know, I've been trying to democratize the world through kinetic strikes for a long time. And I'm, I'm not sure I made a lot of headway in 36 years. I just, I, I don't have a good metric for how successful I was. So maybe I'll try this information thing. And then I get down to kind of my area in YouTube and, um, you know, I'll get it wrong and somebody will correct me, no doubt. But like their, their principles or mantra I saw um, that, uh, that what YouTube does is give everybody a voice and show them the world. And I thought that, that's pretty doggone honorable. I'm good with that. So when I see things in the news that, um, you know, Google did this wrong and Google did that wrong, I'm like, yeah. But so did the Army. So, so did DOD. They, they did some things wrong. You know, I never was in the service um, thinking, hey, this is perfect. I have perfect leadership. 
and the military's perfect. I, I, I took the flaws and tried to get stronger from them. And it's the same way with Google. When I perceive a flaw, I, I try to get better through that. I try to make the organization better. How can we fix that? Am I seeing it wrong or is other people seeing it wrong? Um, and, and, and it's an organization that inspires intellectual curiosity. Um, so I, I don't plan. On, <laughs> I hope this doesn't get me fired, but I don't, I don't plan on uh, leaving uh, this organization. I think they're doing a lot of good for a lot of people. Um, and uh, again, you know, none of us are perfect as individuals or as organizations, but doggone, some strive harder, harder to get there than others. And, uh, and I appreciate that. Well, I'm just glad you didn't raise your hand that first day and tell them the kinetic strike thing about democratizing the world. I, I don't know how well that would have went over. Well, you know, the thing is, is that uh, my, my first director, that article that you pulled those two quotes from was, you know, done right as I was retiring. And he called me and he's like, dude, you can't be talking like that. <laughs> so, so then you go ahead and pull two quotes out of the article I'm not supposed to be talking about. That's a mainstay of the podcast. That's, but, that's, no. uh, yeah, that's uh, that's my fault. Uh, you know. <laughs> no, it's all good. I mean, it. Uh, the thing is, is uh, again, great, great culture, respectful of military we have a great organization called uh, VetNet inside the organization do a lot for transitioning vets um, and people real easy to google <laughs> you know jobs for veterans at google um, and you know the first responders can look the same it's not like some set aside for veterans it's just how do you, how do you find what's available out there so um, you know, it, it has been fortunate. All things happen for a reason. And, you know, if I would have been promoted to field marshal in the Army, I wouldn't be in this job. I really wouldn't. And quite honestly, I would have been asking my family, you know, for seven days a week um, on the clock, like our GOs are right now in, in most of our Army, you know, and my son. It's great living vicariously <laughs> through him. Um and listening to his trials and tribulations. But, uh, you know, again, huge fan of the Army. The plaque behind me right there, shadow box, says 13,044 glorious days. I mean that. Even the hard ones were glorious. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not impossible to transition if you put on the lenses of, hey, what's similar to me? What's familiar? And that, that's what I chose to go to every assignment in, you know, as whether you're a police detective and I, you know, think when you make like different ranks, sometimes they move you to different precincts, just like the Army does, um, moves you to different units every couple of years. All of us first responders and, and military people spent our whole adult life re-immersing or immersing and re-immersing in new cultures. So it, it's not hard to move from very dynamic first responder military life to corporate America. If you choose to look at what's similar and not be a crotchety old dude that's just looking for what's different and pretending like where you came from was the ideal. And that's something people do. You know, they bitch about it the whole time that they're in, in the service or in the police department. But damn, the day that they leave, they, they, they idealize it and all they talk about is how great it was. And you can remember the great, 
but then look for that same great in that in that next phase and you'll find it it's there there's committed people there's good missions there's good intent there there's a rewarding work that can be found if you look for it so that, well and i think I, I think that's the big thing with the transition. I think that, like you said, people take their eyes off the prize and they think I've done this for so long. What could I possibly do that would either give me as much joy or give me the same amount of mission? And I think that's where we lose a lot of people in law enforcement in first responders and in military is that they just think, well, this is all I've done. This is all I can ever do. And they don't really look long term at what could happen later on. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and you have so much to offer, military people, um, first responders, because you have work ethic. You know, there's companies that pay for that. You show up on time. You deliver effects. I mean, all of us in this collective community, that, that's what we do. Um, and if the effects have to be delivered on Christmas Day, we deliver them. We show up. Um, and, and, and that's marketable. You just got to figure out how to market it. Um, and it's not by being the crotchety old guy. It's by being the, the informed, you know, new guy over here. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for people that take the time to listen to your podcast because I find it fascinating. Um, and uh, in, in these others that there is opportunity. So um, be hopeful about that. Yeah, I, I was told on the show by one of the guests one time, they said, you need to be prepared, but that prepared, when they open the door, be ready to kick it in and go all the way in and be ready for it. Don't sit around and wait for them to come to you because when they come to you, you got to be ready to go. Yeah, well, that's exactly it, right? It's it's luck, right? Preparedness and opportunity come together. And I, I will, if I couldn't elaborate on, on one thing, sure. and I've learned a heck of a lot more sitting on this side of the table and being a hiring manager. And I'm not talking about the company I work for. I just think in general, the greatest flaw that I talk to people about is government people write a resume that tells a hiring manager or recruiter everything they want to say about themselves vice everything the recruiter or the hiring manager needs to know about them. And that's a huge, there's a huge delta there. I don't need to hear everything you want to tell me about yourself. I need to hear what's relevant to that job description I spent four hours writing. Um, and military and government people that I see historically write chronological kind of CVs. This is what I am today. 13th precinct, detect, lead detective, homicide, New York City, or whatever. You know, it's it's like this absolute, okay, not even remotely relevant to the job that they're applying for. And it's from 3 June 2019 to today. You know, and then down here, 2 June 19, you know, back to this date. Um, and, and, you know, you got to get function, right functional um uh, resumes and and I'm not the resume coach so please don't link up me <laughs> there's plenty of people that can get that can, that can help with we'll be sure to put his help. LinkedIn uh, yeah, I, I, I can tell I, yeah I can tell you what doesn't look good chronological <laughs> resume from top to bottom all the way down to Cub Scouts and one law enforcement one that I did read was um you know it was three pages long size nine font because I had to check I was 
I knew it was small uh, and it, it had like quarter inch margins and it did go all the way to Eagle Scout. And I was like, holy smokes, man. Um, but uh, that I won't even elaborate on that. But <laughs> I, I haven't seen that guy around, so I, I haven't been able to talk to him. I'll just say that. Um, so you got to be you got to be smart. Um, uh, put put the effort into it. Um, uh, finding the jobs, researching the companies. Is it a fit for you? If it is, write to that because your resume is your entree ticket into talking to a hiring manager. Um, boilerplate resumes, they, they work if you want to go to law enforcement, you want to work for a security company, um, you want to be a government contractor, a military, you know, GS or a government GS, they probably work that way. They, I don't think they work as well outside of that, those realms. So again, I'm not the resume guy. I'm just, I'm just saying. Once again, we'll make sure we put his LinkedIn guys. contact on here. Yeah. You guys can, uh, approach him there. There are resume people out there that are really smart. At <laughs> Don't try and get it off you now. There's going to be tons coming your way. Yeah. No, so where all. can people find you? Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I'm the easiest guy in the world to find. I am on LinkedIn, first name, last name, whatever. Um, but I am. And, and I say that because on, on a move that I made from brigade command to special operations command, it was supposed to be a door to door move, but it, it wasn't fourth of July weekend got in there and I lost a crate of things that were very special to me, like my battalion command colors. Um, my first bronze star was the only one that I framed when I was from being a second Lieutenant and, and a bunch of other, you know, accolades um and, and then some of my wife's stuff uh that was special to her easiest guy on the planet to find <laughs> nobody's found me to tell me hey i got your crate so i'm hopeful <laughs> it's in the back corner of some storage lot um and somebody's gonna find it when i'm like 72 or something and reach out but uh yeah i laugh about that because i am the easiest guy on the planet to find i think um, and, and I won't accept you on Facebook. I'm, I try, unless you're a rock paratrooper or a family member I like, you don't get on, that's, that's it. or a ranger um, from, from my old other time. And I, I'm terrible at going through that because I got so many people on there, I can't keep track of all the all their recipes and everything else they want to share. Um, yeah, so... So I think what we're saying is if you need to find him, you can find him on LinkedIn. First name, LinkedIn. last name. Easy also, I just want to remind you guys, send your resumes to him at LinkedIn yeah. and he can check them out for you. I'll set up a special file <laughs> for you. It'll look like a little garbage can because that's not my, my deal. Um, well, love y'all, but uh, that's not my deal. This okay. this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, they can find you there. Make sure you find him on LinkedIn. Guys, if you uh, want more me, you can, of course, find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. You can find me on YouTube where we just talked about where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Also, don't forget dtdpodcast.net. That has everything you need to find us. It's got guest pages with all their links, photos of their careers. It's got it in audio and video form all in one dedicated website. Also, guys, don't forget to check out our sponsor, Police Coffee, at policecoffee.com. It's an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and shipped as soon as they are made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. 
every batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. And their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee is some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause. And don't forget this one. They give back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. When you go there to order yours at policecoffee.com, don't forget the code DJK10 will give you 10% off your order. Once again, policecoffee.com. Guys, that's going to be the show for this week. This has been an amazing conversation. I'm humbled and honored that you came on here. We're going to catch you guys. That's Bill. I'm DJ. We'll see you on the next one. See you guys later.